2: Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. How's it going, Lance?
3: It's going very well. How are you today, Tim?
2: I'm doing well. And Lance, for this episode, we continue our coverage of the unsolved murder of Dean Webster from Rochester, Vermont. And
3: this episode, we speak to Dean's sister... Sandy. Yeah, it was a really emotional interview with Sandy. You can tell that she is just still torn up about it. She gave some details about what it's done to her family. And that's when she started to, to break a little bit because you can, you can tell that something like this, uh, we talk about secondary victims all the time. This is a perfect example of that. Just down to like her family members not even knowing whether they could trust each other, which I think is really tragic. I think they're mending uh, fences and, and trying to move forward. But, you know, everyone's getting older and and Dean's murder is still unsolved. And it's been unsolved since November of 2001.
2: Right. And obviously it's a tragedy. Um, they're losing Dean. Uh, there has not been any justice. And then, as you mentioned, Lance, it's, it's caused rifts inside, even inside the family, which is you know, this secondary victim tragedy that we kind of discuss a lot. And she actually wrote us an email recently, Lance, and uh, I think we're going to read it here in the intro because it, it is so emotional. And uh, and also, before we read this, I want to make sure that you listen to part one of our Dean Webster coverage. There's a lot of information in there, and it's a really unique opportunity that we're being given here by private investigator Lou Barry and the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing. So in episode one, we speak to Lou Barry, who is also in this episode, and he takes us through the first steps of his investigation into the unsolved murder of Dean Webster for private investigations for the missing.
3: Yeah, highly recommend people check that out not only for uh, the awareness factor of Dean's murder, but to experience the process of private investigations for for the missing from the beginning. And this is um, just another example of the template. Lou is gathering information, speaking to family members. We're acting as the media conduit um, for the time being. And honestly, the platform of podcasting is starting to become a little bit more important than a regular news broadcast that is distributed locally to that area. The The podcast can, can reach anybody, anywhere, and will be there forever. And uh, I think that's something that uh, we're experiencing now with Erica Franilik and with uh, Dean Webster.
2: And so make sure to follow the social pages for Private Investigations for the Missing. They're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And also there's a Facebook page called Who Killed Dean Webster. There's a link to that in the show notes. And if you have information about Dean's unsolved murder, please contact us at dean at gmail.com or through the Facebook Messenger. Also, tips can be submitted anonymously to the Vermont State Police through their website, or by
3: texting VTIPS to 274637. So here is the email that Sandy wrote. She starts with, I don't know why I get emotional and forgetful every time someone wants to ask me questions about my brother, but I do. Doesn't matter whether it's been one day or 20 years, it still breaks my heart. He meant a lot to me because he was my brother and not just a nobody. We all grew up together and we all got along pretty well. Dean was like a father to me. He taught me how to shoot a gun, encouraged me to take hunter and safety courses, protected me on the school bus, helped me buy a car when I got my license, was willing to help me buy land when I was ready, helped me pay for my college books when I took classes.
2: While my dad lived in Jericho, Dean would drive my brother and I there after school on Fridays to visit. And at the time, I would sit in the back seat and be slightly embarrassed because they'd be rocking out to the Beastie Boys, licensed to ill, singing as loud as possible. He drove a gold Pontiac, four-door standard, shot his biggest deer on the way to school one morning and put that deer in the trunk. One side of the horn dragged on the pavement and ended up with a flat spot on it. I could always count on Dean, and if he said he'd be there to help, he would be there. He was always sweet, caring, and his heart overflowed with kindness. Dean had a solid approach to life. Sad that he isn't here today. Sad that he can't meet my kids. Sad that my kids will never get to see firsthand what a great person he was. The person or persons that did that to him had to be something evil. He, she, took a wonderful human off this earth. I just want justice served for Dean.
3: And again, that was from Sandy, Dean Webster's sister the guest on this episode.
2: We are being joined now by Sandy Webster. Sandy, how are
3: you?
4: I'm good. How are you all today?
3: We're doing really well, and we want to thank you for joining us here to talk about your brother, Dean Webster. We uh, had covered his unsolved homicide with Lou. Lou's here with us as well. Uh, we covered his unsolved homicide um, a, a few weeks ago, and his, uh, that, was, that happened in November uh, of 2001, and Lou was able to make the connection with you. And, um, yeah, just want to thank you for coming on, and, and, Lou, thank you for doing what you're doing. Well, it's my pleasure.
4: And thank you for having me on.
3: Absolutely.
2: Can we hear a little bit about Dean? What was it like growing up with Dean?
4: He was always a great person um kinda like um he would do just about anything for actually any one of us if he could uh, you know as a child i mean he he uh he was always pleasant and very kind, a jokester, so to speak um. Sometimes you didn't get his jokes, but he always thought he was funny. So that's kind of the main main thing that counted, you know. Um and like I said, he he's always done everything for any one of us that we ever needed, so
1: he was a little older than you, right right, Sandy?
4: Yeah, he was three years older.
3: How how big was um how big was your family?
4: Uh there were seven of us total. So wow. I'm the youngest and he was above me.
3: Okay, you were the youngest, and, and he was a—how uh, uh, how many years older was he? Did, did he, did you say? Three. Three? Okay. And uh, what was it like to grow up in the town of Rochester?
4: Actually, we didn't grow up in the town of Rochester. We grew up in the town of Florence, Vermont.
2: Oh, okay. Is that nearby?
4: It's probably um, maybe 20 miles away.
2: Is it a similar-sized town?
4: Actually, it's a lot smaller-sized town. Um, the houses are spread out a lot further. The only thing that uh, that was actually there is truly a uh, church and a post office. Other than that, it was like the local towns that you had to really travel to. I mean, when we, we went to school, I mean, it would take us forty five minutes to an hour on a bus ride to get to school.
3: What was it like growing up in a in a family of you had six six brothers and sisters? What was that like? Because I've I had two sisters, so I can't imagine you know doubling up on that.
4: Well, it. Wasn't too bad. I mean, usually it was like the brothers and sisters actually took care of the younger kids a lot of the time.
3: And did you keep in touch with uh, your brother, Dean, after he moved out of the house and, um, you know, on a regular basis?
4: Yeah, we'd speak like daily, if not, you know, once a week or whatever. And whenever I had a problem, I'd call him and he, you know, it'd be somebody to talk to who wasn't judgmental or whatever. So.
3: Yeah, looking at the pictures of him online, it seems like he's, he just looks like a really like decent guy to be around. He just looks like a fun guy to be around. He, I, I haven't seen a picture of him where he's not smiling. Was that, was that pretty much the case?
4: It was. He would always be smiling or happy for the most part.
3: It has to be difficult talking about his death. What was it like when you first heard what happened and how long it had been since you had spoken to him before you heard about this?
4: I was supposed to be, I think it was like two days before I was told, and one of my sisters called me to tell me that he fell off the roof.
3: He actually fell off the roof?
4: No, that's just what I guess they thought in the beginning, is that he fell off his roof while working on his wow. house.
2: So, yeah, that that's wild. So when did you learn that that wasn't the case?
4: It was, um, I I don't remember. Actually, it was a little time after that, a couple days.
3: So how did they get the information that he fell off the roof? Was it something that the police had told them or was it something that a neighbor had thought and told them?
4: Um, I think maybe it was somebody that, you know, had called one of my family members and said that. They just didn't know exactly what the story was, but that's just kind of what they heard or whatever. So I don't know how that got started, but Hmm. that's just what I was told.
3: So then you find out that he was he was shot, and what was your reaction to that? Did you immediately have a have an idea of who might have done that, or well, that must have been shocking to you?
4: No, I had no idea. But you kind of just think everybody. At least I did. I mean, I lost. I was like just very distrustful of others.
2: Oh, that's. That's uh, sad to hear. So that that was kind of a, a change in uh, in your life afterwards?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Well, did you have any contact with the police?
4: Um, they spoke with me every once in a while just to let me know what was going on or whatever, but really nothing ever panned out for any of it.
3: And according to a couple of articles that uh, that I've read, you were supposed to meet up with him on November 15th, uh, is that correct?
4: Yeah, that's correct.
3: And he, and he obviously didn't show up. And uh, what what was the um, reason for the meetup, just to hang out?
4: Yeah, usually. I mean, he was working on his house all day, so he was going to um, my sister's house to take a shower. So we were going to meet there because he said he was headed over in that direction anyways because I was going to drive. Mm-hmm. But he over and just to meet him at my sister's, mm-hmm. and he never showed up.
3: And he'd been working on his house, you said. Was this a house that he was uh, renovating? He bought it and he was renovating it? Or is it something that he was kind of doing from, you know, from the ground up?
4: He was building his house from the ground up. It's a piece of property that he bought. And then he wanted to put a house on it. And that's what he was working on.
1: He was out of work at the time due to to his
2: injury?
4: Yeah, he was out of work. Right, right. And how, how did
3: he get injured again?
4: The way I understand, a chain fell on his arm.
3: A
2: chain?
4: Yeah, he was in. Uh, he did pipe fitting and stuff like that. So, commercial pipe fitting—you're uh, way up in the air on ladders or whatever—and a guy above him dropped a chain, and it hit his arm. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I I'm not there. I couldn't tell you exactly how it went, but
3: I mean, it was obviously enough to keep him out of work. So, yeah, that that's uh that that's terrible. But it does. Uh, impress me! Anyone who builds their house from the ground up like that, I'm, um, I'm enormously impressed by that. Was he, uh, good with his hands? He obviously was, right? I mean, he was a hunter and a and a fisherman, right? And uh, and he was also a builder, apparently.
4: He was very talented. Um, he used to build things in school, like clocks and um, just just about anything—shelves, uh, gun cabinets—and <laughs> he could he could pretty much do a lot of things and.
3: Uh, in 2001, he was living alone in, in in the house that he was building. So it was at a uh, a point where you know it was livable and and insulated and everything.
4: Yeah, it was more of a shell, but he made it work. And, it, and and up until the time that like the spring actually stopped working, he had to have a well drilled. And so that's why he was taking showers at other people's houses or whatever, because he still wanted to live here and still build it.
2: And Lou. You mentioned that uh he got injured and uh, wasn't working at the time of his death. Did you identify that as a clue somehow?
1: Uh no, just um explaining the fact that why he wasn't working, you know, he he was out on a work with the comp claim, so he was you know taking advantage of that opportunity to work on his house. I mean, otherwise, you know, if he'd been working, he obviously wouldn't have been there at that hour of the day during the week.
3: It it feels like to me he's a you know, a, a guy you can get along with, he's talented, he's, uh, if, if your car breaks down or if you have a problem with your car, he, he would probably be a guy that you would call to maybe take a look at it or, you know, something, something breaks, or like you said, he built cabinets and built shelving. Like, did he have an enemy? I feel like he was, all of these attributes don't really line up for anybody uh, to dislike this guy.
4: I've never felt like he's ever had an enemy ever, even growing up he was always friendly to people. People were always friendly to him. I'm sure maybe during work, maybe he could have been an ass or sorry, could have been a little strong headed. I mean, but that's, you know, the type of work that you do. I mean, when things aren't level, you say something or, you know, just perfect because it has to be perfect for it to work and keep working.
2: Was he, uh, did you know him to be hanging out with any, uh, people who might seem a little sketchy?
4: Um, you know, I think everybody hangs out with somebody who's a little sketchier than another person. I mean, so it's nothing that's uncommon because, I mean, we live in such small towns here that you kind of know those people. It's not like you hang out with them. You know them or you know them by association mm-hmm. or whatnot.
2: So do you, do you think it could be a hunting accident? I mean, I, I know he was a, a pretty avid hunter.
4: Um, not by the sounds of it, No.
2: A mistaken identity or something like that? I would it, would. it doesn't seem to make sense why he would have been targeted.
4: I don't know. Sometimes I think mistaken identity, it's kind of hard to think because I've always been preoccupied with, you know, how he died or who did it or whatever.
3: What, what have the um, police communicated with you? Um, I mean, now and then back then, did you uh, go in for any official questioning about this?
4: I would say no official questioning. They've asked me questions before more than willing to answer whatever they have because, I mean, whatever. But I don't think it's official. I mean, when I see say official, don't they just kind of like set you down and talk to you completely or ask you like hundreds of questions or things like that? That's what I think is official, so probably unofficial.
3: How about the rest of your family?
4: I don't think that there's been really anybody who's had an official interaction with them. I mean... More recently than there was a long time ago, I think they thoroughly questioned like my sisters and brothers at one point.
3: They're asking you questions about the investigation, um, like things like did did they did you see anybody that you, you know was questionable during that time period or was your brother ever acting um, like he was afraid of something? Questions like that or were they were they more um, sort of general?
4: I think a lot of them are more general questions. Like, if they have a question, or if, you know, you say you hear something, then they have questions. I mean, because there's stories going around all over. It doesn't mean that they're true, but obviously people like to uh, talk. But then again, once you go back to the source of it, it seems to be a lot of the same people. Oh, really? Mm hmm
2: So have some some people or uh, any individuals stood out as a little more shady than the rest of the community?
4: Um, I would say once in a while they, I mean, a long time ago they did, but then if I thought people were shady, it seemed like I was thinking everybody was shady. So it kind of got to the point where I had to stop because I'm not the investigator and it's just, you know, I can make anybody, you know, kind of guilty in a way, I think, than than what actually is just because I'm his sister.
3: Yeah, of course. And I can't imagine what it must be like, even going to the grocery store and looking around and and wondering if this is the person who did this. It, you know, especially right after it happened and right after you found out, I and mean, that must have been that must have been a, a certain kind of torment
4: for you. That's terrible. Yeah, it was. I, ha- I had a whole lot of bitterness and anger toward everybody. So,
1: in a case like this, where it, um, given the geographic location. Um, as opposed to, you know, being in a city or somewhere where there's a lot of random crime, um, the chances of, of him not knowing his assailant are probably pretty slim. So whoever did it is probably known to the people up there. Um, not, not to necessarily know that he did it, but know, they know the person who did it. Um, so that would make it even more, um, you know, likely that... He, you don't know who you're talking to. You don't you know whether the person's involved or not. Does that make sense?
3: No, that makes total sense. And actually, I'm—I was going to ask if uh, if you think that the person, actually, both of you, uh, I don't know, you might have different opinions on this. Do you think that the person who did this is still living in the area? Are they from the area? Are they? Is that sort of definite in your heads?
4: In my mind, I feel like somebody is closer than I would like to believe. Um, living somewhere similar i mean because he did have two big dogs and it's not like they were really vicious dogs but you had to know them to approach them or approach his property or him for that matter i mean he had a rottweiler Mm -hmm. and a boxer and they would make some noise i mean if somebody that they didn't know would actually you know come onto the property I, i i almost think that yes maybe it is somebody who's closer than i think
2: right cuz you're saying the dogs might have acted a little different or things might have gone down a little differently maybe
4: maybe i mean i'm not you know 100% sure but wasn't like the dogs were the you know the friendliest and maybe they weren't the meanest but you kind of have to know them i mean you're not going to approach a a rottweiler on somebody's property i don't think
3: no no it's a good opinion it it really does stand to reason that if you've um if you didn't know this person and you didn't know the property and you just happened upon it and then you you see either a Rottweiler or he has a um what was it a a bulldog a bo-
4: a boxer
3: a boxer sorry so a Rottweiler and a boxer I mean yeah I I you're probably not approaching that person.
4: A in end street, so it's not like it's you know some place that you're going to go normally.
1: Yeah, you would just happen by there.
3: So that's pretty much your opinion as well, Lou.
1: Well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I hate to jump to the conclusions. It, it, I think it's way too early an investigation for that, but certainly the indication to me at this point would be most likely it's someone that um uh undoubtedly knew the area and most likely knew him. Um now whether they're, you know, still in the area or not, I I wouldn't even begin to speculate at this point because I don't I don't know the players at all, but um yeah. certainly that's the indication. Now, it, you know, you hate to Take hate to focus on one avenue of thinking and, and eliminate others just by virtue of the fact that you don't think it didn't happen. You try to keep an open mind, but um, certainly looking at the odds, um, I, you know, I know where it is, and I'm not sure I could find a place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. the fact that someone who just happened to stumble on it, happened to be armed with a firearm, and for no reason, you know, shoot somebody is pretty slim. Um, again, it's not like it's a city where you, you could have a random act of violence. Maybe somebody was going to do a street robbery or something like that. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty evident that someone is is at minimum familiar with that area and most likely also acquainted, at least somewhat acquainted with with Dean. Um, being...
3: Right. And, and Lou, you brought this case to us through private investigations for the missing, and while it's not a missing persons case, it's still an unsolved cold case. Uh, at what point in your investigation did you reach out to Sandy, and what what was that like, um, you know, making that, that connection?
1: Well, it, it actually came to my attention in kind of an unusual way. There's a, a young lady who was um, a journalist who— uh somehow i don't know it was for article or what had been research in this case for quite some time and they did a a fairly good job um very good job actually gathering a lot of information and kind of come to a dead end and decided it was time for you know someone maybe some investigative experience to look at it and I, i don't know how she found me but somehow she did and contacted me and asked me if i'd take a look at it um and once I cleared it with, uh, you know, P.I. for the missing that they were interested in looking at the case, um, I, I reached out to Sandy um, as the, the family member and the contact, explained, you know, who we were, what we were doing, and why we were doing it. And um, obviously we want the family on board. We're not going to do anything without the family's okay. So, um, But it's an interesting case for sure, and I think it's on its face at least very, very solvable case.
3: Yeah. And Sandy, what was it like when Lou reached out to you and how long it had been since you worked with any investigator on this?
4: Well, it was actually um, the lady that he's referring to, she contacted me a couple of years ago, um, actually. But she was working on some other thing at the time. And then, I don't know, a few months after that, she just kind of linked somebody that lived within the area here that she was actually looking at. And then my brother's case came up at the same time. So then she kind of switched gears. And it was a little tough for me in the beginning because I didn't know whether to trust this person or not because I didn't know the person. And she contacted me through Facebook, like what a lot of people do. So it took me a while to get to, you know, talk to her. I met her. You know, she didn't seem like a really bad person but when I hear journalists I'm like, well what are they in, you know, what are they doing? Um why are they interested in the case because it's unsolved and so then she finally, you know, she she said that she was really, you know, interested in trying to get it solved, which was great. Um and then when I finally spoke to Lou, I mean, I was like I I don't feel like I have really anything to lose because I hope pray that
2: Found. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see We could not, but she did. And in the end...
0: What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's knix.com, promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.
2: Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program.
3: Yeah, how, how much... Um. How much physical evidence do you know um, came from the crime scene? I guess uh, this is more for for you, Sandy. Did they, the police back back in the day, uh, share anything with you uh, that they seized from the from the crime scene?
4: Uh, no, no, I don't feel like a lot has been shared, um, mm-hmm. but, but kind of understandable. I yeah, mean, they were working on it. They don't want things to get out that shouldn't be out.
2: Right, and they I'm sure they want to to, to prosecute it, as Lou said, it does kind of sound solvable um with certain aspects of it
1: and this is still an active case with them. this is not um even though it's an old case i I wouldn't necessarily call it a cold case because they are still um actively investigating it' it's, it's still um uh, they're still working on it, so they they are um very conscientious of, of what they what is released and what isn't um, justifiably because they have to think prosecution. That's their goal, obviously. So, um, you know, that's why they're very uh, tight-lipped about, you know, what they have for evidence, what they don't have for evidence, which is, again, understandable.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting that you said it's an active case, so it's not necessarily a cold case. I guess I never made that distinction.
1: Yeah, a cold case indicates... It's just sitting there, nobody's really doing anything with it, I think. Uh-huh. Um, and that's why a lot of times, instead of, re- instead of referring to them as cold cases, even though that's a popular term, in reality what they are is unresolved cases, and, and they're a little bit different there. Um, and this is more of an unresolved case than a cold case, I think. I, I don't think they've ever really put this on the shelf and said, you know, we're not going to touch it anymore. I mean, there, there may be time when they're they have other – things that take priority obviously uh something that's more active but um you know it's, this case has never been put to bed so to speak
2: and lou have you been in touch with uh the current uh investigating officers
1: i have had conversation with them yes
2: okay great um i imagine it's a one-way street
1: these <laughs> things usually are um and yeah you know but that's okay because um Number one, as I think I said last time, I want to look at it with a fresh eye anyways. Um, And it's easy if someone else tells you something, it's easy to take their word for it and not look at it yourself. So I'd rather almost not know anything at this point um, and try and and find things myself. So in that sense, it's not a bad thing, I I don't think. Um, And the other thing is, you know, the goal in this case, unlike some, like, For instance, the Brianna Maitland case, where our goal was to find out what happened to her. Number one, that was priority. In this case, we know what happened to Dean. The priority is getting whoever did it prosecuted. You know, I can't, I'm, I'm not a law enforcement agency. I don't prosecute cases. They do. So, in effect, anything I'm doing is, I can't really do anything with any, anyways, except turn over to them. You know, in that sense, it doesn't make sense in a lot, of, a lot of way for them to be revealing stuff that they know, I, I guess. I don't know if I'm making myself clear or not An that, but.
2: No, it makes sense. Yeah, they obviously want to prosecute. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's the goal of prosecution. So they can't risk anything that could jeopardize a prosecution. That would be self-defeating in, in what we're trying to accomplish here.
3: So where do you start when you contact someone like Sandy, who's a sister, and you begin your process, uh, do you go back to, I guess, like the drawing board, for lack of a better word? Do you go back to the beginning? Do you say just start at the beginning and you try to gather, um, you know, maybe some some information that that fell through the cracks throughout the years?
1: Yeah, that's certainly a big part of it. I mean, I try and research as much as possible, uh, news articles, uh, media reports, um, talking to you know the people that were involved initially, um, peripheral witnesses and, their, and family members. Um, you know that you have to learn as much about the case uh, as you can, and, and I think that's kind of the stage that I'm at right now. Um, talking to family members, um, and at the same time, um, getting the word out, the publicity out, and that's exactly what you know we're doing with the podcast. Um, because that generates talk and that generates potential leads, you know, certainly if something came in now, I I would certainly jump on it, but you know, you kind of go in steps. The first step is to learn all all you can, talk to as many people as you can and see what develops from there and hope you get lucky.
2: Okay. So, uh, is that still the stage you're in?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is really, like I said, the beginning stages, um, I've talked to Sandy, I've talked to another sister, I want to talk to a couple other um, family members, um, just again, for background information, and in the meantime, I'm compiling a list of other people, either witnesses or potential suspects that I eventually want to take a look at or talk to. Um, So, you know, a lot of this stuff involves planning and preparation, I guess, and it's hard, obviously, with the... The COVID situation, everything has to be done via computer and telephone. You can't jump in a car and go knocking on doors, which um, you might otherwise is more effective.
3: So, Sandy, it must be difficult to talk about, but uh, can you speak a little bit about the toll that this took on your family?
4: Um, Well, my parents were divorced, so we'd get together for Christmases, and our whole family would come together and have dinner somewhere, and then... Kind of after that happened everybody kinda of split and kinda of did their own thing. So kinda of broke us up. And I don't know if it was because nobody trusted anybody. It was kinda of hard to say. I mean we still talk to each other, most of the family does for the most part, but it's like here or there or every once in a great while, you know. So
1: I talked to your dad and it seemed to have a real real impact on him. Uh, he's he's what in his eighties now.
4: Yeah, he's eighty. And
1: yep. It seems to be really a focus of his at this point.
2: Well, what would this mean to you and your family if uh, if it were to be resolved?
4: I mean, <laughs> it would be it would be great because it would serve justice for Dean, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, just you know, I don't know if it would really change anything knowing who did it or whatever, but. You know, just the fact of somebody being out there, you know, who committed this crime, which was really awful, in my personal opinion, because he was a great person, you know. And I know people have always told, told me, you know, bad things happen to good people all the time. I think it's just a saying because you don't really know until mm-hmm. you're put in that situation, you know. Mm-hmm. Cause nobody ever knows how you feel. I mean, I know how I feel, but everybody else can kind of like shrug it off and think that it's nothing. But if it was their brother or, you know, family member, I think they would have a different perspective on it. Even if it was like a person who did it, you know, if one of their family members were taken away in the same, you know, way, I think they would kind of feel how we feel.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we can hear it in your voice, and it's something that, uh, we try to emphasize a lot more, and when we started doing this, we didn't really fully grasp the secondary victim effect, and whoever did this to your brother has no idea that—or maybe they do, and that's even worse—but the effect that it has on the family, and like it really struck a chord with me when you said that your family doesn't—maybe maybe there was some distrust amongst the family. Like, that, that's really— Uh, tragic to hear that of that that a family would start to distrust each other because something like this happened and you know you've probably repaired some of that trust because but but initially like you're looking at everybody and it's it i don't think the people who do these crimes have uh, fully grasp the whole of i guess humanity and i i think you know whatever whatever we can do to try to help that is really what we're here for and you know, again, we appreciate you coming on and talking about it, even though it's obviously very painful. And
4: yeah, okay, Sandy. Yeah, I'm good.
3: Okay. Has there been any other crime in the area that that has happened? Um, maybe either of you might know about that you look at and you say that's kind of similar that maybe can point to somebody, or has it been pretty quiet there?
4: It's pretty quiet for the most part. I mean, there's, had, I mean, there's shootings, but they happen here and there. I mean, Randolph is a close area that's had one. But I don't ever really look at anything too similar. The crime rate, the
1: um, <clears throat> violent crime is about half the U.S. average, uh, and property crime is a, almost at the U.S. average.
3: So what you're saying is it's not that common.
1: Right. It's, it's a little, relatively low little crime rate. On a scale yeah. of 1 to 100, it's a 10.
3: Okay. And we don't know of any
2: uh, sort of similar crimes uh, done with the maybe same weapon or similar caliber or whatever um, in the area or anything like that? Uh,
1: I, I, not that I'm aware of this. No.
3: Well, I, I just want to put it out there. I don't know if the person who did this—I don't know if the person who did this, I don't know if the who did this um, is listening, but we, we do make an effort to— uh, to uh to target the areas that these crimes have been committed in and and hopefully someone who knows something or someone who did this uh, hopefully the person is listening and i don't know how anyone could hear hear what's in your your voice sandy and not not look at themselves and just be like i'm a disgusting person i need to do something about this and hopefully that person can can hear that and you know you still have time if you're listening to you still have time to to fix this and and you know at least try to do something right
1: along those lines not just the person who committed the crime to me chances are someone else knows something someone who, who, who isn't facing necessarily any criminal charges knows something they're the ones that should really feel guilty and not, about not coming forward
2: absolutely and if anyone has any information they can contact the Vermont State Police
3: Lou is this something that you would recommend people with a tip uh, also um, submitted through investigations for the missing you
1: know ways they can submit it. They can send it, um, certainly, um, to the state police tip line. Uh, there's a cell number I can give you for the state police investigator, Sergeant, um, uh, Kinney. Um, okay. there's, uh, you know, they could, they could email crawl space. <laughs> they could email PIs for the missing. Um, you know, there's, there's Facebook pages they could send a message to, um, and it really doesn't matter how the info comes in. The, the key is getting the info in
3: there. So we'll put we'll put everything in the show notes, so it can be real easy uh, access for anybody who has information, whether it's a link or a phone number. Uh, basically, what you're saying, Lou, is if you know something, just say it to say it somewhere. We'll we'll find it.
1: Tell somebody. Yeah. And if they <laughs> right. if they don't want to talk to the state police, then call us. If they don't want to call us, call state police. Call you. Uh, you know, call um, PI for the missing or text them or send them an email or whatever. The key is to, to get the information to somebody that can do something with it you know, and bring closure to the family
3: here. Absolutely. As, as much as closure as possible. And I, I really, uh, I, I I'm really appreciative. I, I think we're all really appreciative of you joining us, Sandy and, um, and telling us a little bit about Dean and, and as much as you know about the case, um, and you said that he used to, uh, no no pressure, but he said that he used to have, like, really um, jokes, really, really uh, unfunny jokes that he thought were funny. Does any of them stand out?
4: I do remember something that he used to say all the time to me. <laughs> and he used to always tell me, a piece at a time won't cost you a dime.